Today's podcast is sponsored by RadRx, your source for quality online education for interventional and diagnostic radiology coding, taught by subject matter expert Stacy Buck. For more information and testimonials, visit RadRx.com. Struggling to learn interventional radiology coding? If so, RadRx has the perfect solution for you. Cracking the IR Code, Mastering Interventional Radiology and Cardiology Online Training Program. In this program, interventional radiology coding expert Stacy Buck breaks down the complexities of interventional radiology coding in easy-to-understand terms so you can grasp this complex specialty. Through her course, Stacy has assisted many coders with little or no interventional radiology coding experience in successfully passing the CERC exam on the first attempt. For additional information and testimonials, visit radrx.com. Welcome to Who Cares What Stacy Says, a podcast providing insights and advice on how to take your medical coding career to the next level. And now, here's your host, Stacy Buck. Welcome to Who Cares What Stacy Says. I am your host, Stacy Buck. Today, I'm excited to release the second of three episodes with Brian Quee. In part two, we discuss Brian's unusual path into clinical documentation improvement and learning medical coding while working in CDI. Brian and I both talk about our experiences as adjunct instructors and encourage those who have been thinking about becoming an educator to give it a try. We also touch on buyer beware when it comes to selecting a coding education program And we discuss the importance of networking in our profession. And believe it or not, we again circle back to episode 15, Show Me the Money, with Brian offering his thoughts on salary negotiation and how men and women think differently. And now here is the second episode of my conversation with Brian Quee. So I want to, so now you completely have me like off my plan for this podcast interview. I had kind of a progression of how I wanted to do things, but. Brian's totally screwed that up for me now. So we're going to be jumping around. <laughs> so I okay. hope you're proud of I hope you're happy with yourself, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. okay put, let's get on track. Where are we at? What, what do you want to okay. ask now? Well, no, I kind of want to like rewind a little bit because what okay, are the let's, things let's I wanted, rewind. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about in the beginning was a little bit about your career path. Now, mm. I may not have this correct. So correct me if I'm wrong. When I've listened to you tell your story about your career path, you've held a lot of different jobs along the way. And I feel like in this career path, you either never had the title of coder or you did for like a short amount of time. Like, were you ever a coder? For some reason, I felt like you went from whatever you were doing right into CDI without doing production coding. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. I I was. I started out as a CDI. I never held the title of coder. I was never a coder okay. one, coder two, coder gotcha. three, inpatient coder. I was a CDI and I cross-trained as a coder, as an okay. inpatient coder specifically, and then cross-trained as an outpatient coder. While I was, a, my title in the hospital, uh, my, my mm-hmm. job title was CDI, but mm-hmm. I, was cro- I was taken out of the role temporarily to do inpatient coding and to do outpatient coding. And while I was doing that, that just kind of opened my eyes a bit more mm-hmm. into bridging that gap between what I was doing and clinical 
documentation integrity and coding. So when when they when my boss um, had left and they put me back in CDI, I had a I had a whole new vision of how mm -hmm. to do things in CDI. Like okay, I can I can do the coding part. I'm very good at the coding part. I can uh, and then combine the clinical side as well. So you actually ended up getting a CDI position without actually holding a coding position. The coding came as part of CDI, correct? Yes. I only had my RHIA when I got my CDI uh, position. Uh, they gave me a chance uh, and I told them, I said, look, I don't, I, I don't want this position because I feel, mm -hmm. I explained to them why I feel like I'm not qualified because I only have, I mean, I have my RHIA. I explained to them, look, you know, I, you, you get the coding training and so forth, but do I have any working knowledge of coding? Do I have any clinical skills that would uh, perceive me to be a nurse? No. And they said, well, take the test. I'm, All right. And, um, I, I don't know. I, I explained this to, I explained this to my boss who never knew this, but when they gave me the test, it was the test, you know, him, professor Elton Cust, remember him? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. It was, it was his test. <laughs> oh. Well, there you go. Hmm. Okay. So let's see. So Brian, there's a, there, there's a question. So for those of you who wondered how Brian did the impossible, now we know how he did the impossible. And I told my boss and she, she never knew that. She never knew that. And she was laughing so hard, but yeah, that I knew his test. I knew how he, what kind of like, I mean, I, 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 they said I did well, but I said, look, it's the same test. And I knew how to, I, it's not that I knew the, the questions per se, but I knew how he would ask it. I knew how he would format it. It's just like, you know, taking advantage of the SAT. You know how to take the SAT. Well, I knew how to take Professor Scott Cuss's <laughs> exam for a CDI position. <laughs> I think that's most important. Oh, that's funny. Okay, so you so you did what most people would say is impossible because we always have this yeah, conversation yeah, 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 yeah. about CDI, those positions go to RNs mm -hmm. and those working in HIM who have the mm -hmm. coding background are frustrated that they can't get into CDI because they don't have an RN, but you did not have a coding credential. You had not been a coder and you weren't a nurse and then you jump into this position. So it is possible because, Although, of the, because of demand, they needed somebody and they couldn't fill it. They were actually giving out bonuses for it. So really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the, was, demand, this... the demand and now we know because of the test. So, you yeah, know, that, that, was, yeah. that was a factor. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm sure and, <laughs> and, so I, and I, I'm sure it has to do with, you know, I, 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 um, hmm. Well, I mean, I, I made them laugh, you know, and any interview, just like any, you know, any interaction that we have or any interaction that I have, I always make it a point to show my personality. Like, this is what you're going to get when I get into this role. I'm not going to be some robot. I'm going to connect with you. I'm going to engage with you. I'm going to make you laugh somehow. Uh, and, and that's what I told them. And so um, skills aside, you know, I told them what I did in the previous job in the jail. That's, I mean, that's mm -hmm. the only thing I could speak of. I could only right. speak to mm -hmm. that. I could not speak to coding this or querying right. that or, but mm -hmm. I did speak on uh, the fact that I worked in the jail system. I had a deal with deputies. I had a deal with inmates. I had a deal mm -hmm. with physicians. I had a deal with nurses. So I had the, um, Intera personal interaction skills, you know, 
<laughs> and the jail system carrying over right. to a healthcare system. So right. I think they saw the, that ability and they, they, they figured, well, that position would translate well, because the skill would translate well, because, you know, you're going to have to connect with a physician regardless. Yeah. Physician, inmate, whatever. <laughs> Same thing right now. I'm just kidding. No, no, no. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> It's it's all personalities. It's strong. Yeah. You have strong ones. You have uh, yeah, emotional intelligence. That's all I gotta say. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So so I know you also taught as an adjunct instructor as well. Yes. You were teaching coding. So at what point in your career did you start teaching coding? Did that coincide with your CDI slash coding position, or did that come before? Like, what was the timing on that? I didn't just teach coding. I actually taught the whole program. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, when I first, uh, I think who would I talk to? Yeah, started out with I can name the school, DeVry University, right? That was the first school that came out, um, and I was teaching just the very basics, you know, health information, medical records, and stuff like that. And unfortunately, they couldn't get accredited, so then they said, "Oh well, adios." And then um, I moved on to another uh, university, <laughs> ITT Technical University. They hired mm-hmm. me, uh, which was uh, closed down. But I, I taught for them for uh, two, two entire programs, almost two entire programs. I graduated two classes. And so from the beginning, it was very similar. And it, they were accredited by Kahim as well, um, A through Z, all the way through, including uh, you know, healthcare reimbursement, including legal, including management, uh, <laughs> you name it. You, I, I taught it because nobody else was able to do it. You know, and I, I, I just figured there was a need for it and I, I filled the need. There was a, such a demand for it. Yeah. So how long had you been an RHIA before you started teaching at the college level? Uh, <laughs> not that long. It was, uh, I got my, my RHIA in 2000. They picked me up because when I I went to DeVry, I was actually looking for a second bachelor's in biomedical informatics. I just I just didn't know why. I was just let me just go there and I I put in the application. I sat through all of that you know admission stuff and I left. I'm like okay, and then all of a sudden I get a call from the dean. He says hi. Uh, I see that you put an application to the biomedical informatics program, but that's not what I'm calling you for. Uh, I see you have an mm-hmm. RHIA. Would you be willing to teach <laughs> oh, wow. our bachelor's our bachelor's program back in the day? Uh, because you they didn't require you to have a master's to teach a bachelor's program back in the day. Mm-hmm. So I I was teaching as a bachelor's RHIA teaching a bachelor's program, but now you need to have a master's in order to teach a bachelor's and a yeah. master's to teach a, an associate's. So it wasn't, it didn't take that long because of a need. It was all because I was in the right place at the right time. Right. It sounds that that's kind of in the story of your career, being in the right place at the right time, which definitely you know, helps there. So, you know, I was an adjunct instructor myself and mm. I became an adjunct instructor. I believe I was 26 years old yeah, yeah. when I was teaching at um, the college. I started teaching at Indian River um, Community College mm-hmm. back then. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, it's IRSC. It, you know, they do four year degrees as well. And that I taught different subjects that it was something I always wanted to do was to be an instructor. And 
it's really not all that it's cracked up to be like mm. teaching at the, at the college level. It's tough. It's, it's, there's a lot of, so it does not pay very well. Adjunct nope. instructors don't get paid very much. I think back then we're talking now, probably what, 2002, 2003, I forget what it was a semester, maybe for the whole semester you're getting like, what was it? I don't know, maybe 1500 bucks, maybe a little bit less around mm -hmm. somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. And you're in regularly, you were paid like <laughs> at the end of the semester or something yeah, it's, like that. It's kinda, yeah, it's kind of yeah. weird, like how they paid you. I think they may yeah. have broken it up into multiple. I don't know how they did it. But the thing is, you're in class for three hours, you yeah, know, three to four hours. Yeah, three, you know, three hours in class. It's the prep time out of class mm -hmm. that really isn't factored into the pay. And the frustration that I had as an adjunct instructor is I would never get the same class twice. Yeah. I would get a new class and then I'm you would like, never get I the, yeah, 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 the, I see. The, the only thing that I got more than once was medical terminology, which I absolutely hated. I mm -hmm. hated teaching medical terminology because there's really not anything to teach. Read the book and memorize the stuff. That's medical yeah. terminology. Yeah. So I felt kind of, so that was frustrating there. And then I also had, um, well, let me explain uh, why, why that's frustrating because when you, when you get one course, you're just getting your footing into that course on how to yes. grade it, how to teach it. And then yes. when you get it, let's say you get it easier the second time yes. around. So like if you get a new course, you're basically starting all over again. Yes. And I remember when I was teaching online for Colorado Technical University, they would give me the same class for over like a year. And it was just like I was just breezing through yeah. <laughs> because it was yeah. just like here, here, boom, 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 boom. When they gave me a new course, I'm like, oh. Gosh, I gotta read through all of the stuff, prep mm -hmm. all of this stuff, yes. and and just you know, it's just grinded out. Yeah, it was you know, once you've done a course, you already have the syllabus and all the assignments and everything. You just go in and change the dates on the syllabus, mm -hmm. and you know, me, I would always prepare extra stuff. I wouldn't just teach from the book. I right. would bring in real world stuff. So I would bring a lot of content into the classroom myself. So I would spend a lot of time prepping. So that was always a huge frustration that, okay, now I've built this course next time. I don't need to do any prep. All I have to do is show up and teach it, you know, yeah. three hours, mm -hmm. you know, that night and we're set. And mm -hmm. other than medical terminology, I never got to do another course. And then eventually I just stopped doing that. I did have a brief experience teaching at a technical school. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is a bad representation of technical schools. I don't know how they're structured now, but years ago, I really hated this business model, but I didn't really understand it or know about it until I taught in a technical school. So this is a school that no longer exists. I could say the name. I don't, I'm not going to say the name. I, people may know who I'm talking about when I start talking about it. But they were a technical school that specialized in <clears throat> different medical um, you know, areas that had medical assisting and, you mm, know, okay. your, your, your phlebotomists and medical coding. And so you had a lot of that stuff that was more clinical. And then they had like a coding program and they had locations in all over. And so this particular school was located in West Palm, the campus that I applied to, to teach in their medical coding program. So when I went to interview for the job, um, they were thrilled to have me there and like offered me the job like immediately and had invited me to go meet with the students. They're like, oh, they're taking medical terminology now. Would you like to go, you know, meet with them? Now, what struck me about this whole experience and why they snatched me up so quickly 
was because they had enrolled all of these students in a coding program without having a coding instructor. Oh my goodness. And yeah. so they were doing med term, getting ready to roll into the coding. And they're like, we need to get somebody in here who knows how to teach coding right away. So when I came on board with them, I spent about a month, you know, ramping up, getting things ready to go um, to be able to teach the students. And then I taught there, I think it was four nights a week. So you want to talk about, <laughs> you know, teaching a lot. Oh boy. I, don't re I don't remember what they paid me. The pay was good enough. And in, the, in my full-time job, um, that was going to be going away and transitioning. And I'm like, well, maybe I'd rather teach than do what I'm doing. So let me take the leap and just work double duty, work all yeah, day yeah. and then work at night in the short term. Mm -hmm. And just there. So back then, and I can't, I shudder to think what it would cost now if programs still follow the same model. It was $14,000 a year for students to come in and take this program for coding. Wow. So they would go through the program in, in one year and then they tell them you can come out and you can get a job being a medical coder. Mm. They and most of the students that were in the program were getting government grants and they were pulling student loans for the balance that the government was not paying for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was either heavily funded by the government or it was heavily funded by student loans, which mm -hmm. that in and of itself is sad. So, you know, once I'm in the door and I kind of see how the program is structured, I, being the person that I am, want to give these people exposure to real world. Yes, we've got a textbook. We're going to study what's in the textbook. I'm going to bring in other stuff. I'm going to help you learn what you need to know when you get out the door to become a medical coder. And that was actually frowned upon. Um, I had, so I was teaching, I had been teaching at the college and I then started teaching here. And the students at the college really liked me and they enjoyed me. I was tough, but I was fair. And we had a good relationship over mm -hmm. in this setting. It was the complete opposite there. They wanted you to spoon feed these students. They had people admitted into a program that never should have been admitted to a coding program. Like they do like oh, a basic yeah, 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 entrance yeah. exam, but mm -hmm. they don't really screen yep. to see if the person would be a medical coder. A lot of them had failed medical terminology and they kind of pushed them along, you know, anyway. Or, or they, and, they really have bad like English skills or English <laughs> grammar. You could tell right away when they, when I do some of these papers, I'm like, where are they, where do they take their English from? You know, like they, <laughs> like I would, I would notice like, where are they getting these students? And I, I feel that way. Yeah. So, well, I, I feel like that model, the way it was set up and how they were getting their money, that they preyed upon people yeah, yeah, to get yeah. students enrolled yep, in that school. And, and I know it happened at other schools. Mm -hmm. And so I'm in the classroom. I'm trying to be like a legitimate instructor. I am trying to teach you, you know, and prepare you. And so I'm testing you on things that aren't in the book, things that I covered in class. People are failing my tests. They're not passing. Mm -hmm. Most people are doing horribly. Mm -hmm. um, they're, you know, they're going down to administration and complaining about me that the class yep. is too hard. Then in class, they were so disrespectful. They would all be talking over me, talking during class when I'm trying to lecture. Mm -hmm. And one night I just lost it. I snapped and like yelled at all of them because mm -hmm. I had enough. Now, mind you, I'm like, what, the same age as teaching at the college, 26. Some of the people in the room were the same age as me. Some were older, but I just yeah. freaked out. I had one of those moments where I just snapped and went off on everybody. They went down and complained about me <laughs> because I went off on everybody. And the problem I had there is that administration did zero to back me up and wanted me 
to spoon feed them and back off and make everything easier for them. And at the same, and at the same time, they allowed the students to disrespect me, talk about me disrespectfully, treat me disrespectfully, administration treated me disrespectfully. It was a horrible experience. And it bothered me so much again, because of the money. I'm like, we have our government funds paying for these people to be here and they're going to come out not qualified, not not able to get a job. And then these poor people have pulled loans for the balance, you know, and they're going to be stuck with paying this and that they're not going to probably, most of them probably didn't finish the program. But anyway, a lot of stuff happened. Um, I would say it was probably less than a month, maybe about a month of me actually teaching these people. One day I just emailed them and I said, I quit. I'm not coming in. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, you can't do that. You need to be here to teach tonight. I'm like, no, I think I just did that. I'm not coming in. And so some of the, some of the students had my um, contact information and had reached out to me, the serious ones who wanted to learn. And they're yeah, like, yeah, there are some, there are good students. Yeah, yeah. We, we miss you. We're sorry about what happened. Um, and they said they have the secretary from the office up here teaching us medical coding. Oh, Jesus. So I don't know how, <laughs> how that panned out. I mean, that school no longer exists. They're out of business. I don't know if somebody bought them out or if they closed shop. Mm-hmm. But that's, you know, the reason why I share that story is if there are people listening to the podcast, because this is career advice, you know, my focus yeah. in medical coding, kind of like buyer beware on programs that you're getting into. I always tell people, you're better off going to, you know, a college two-year program. You know, they have coding certificate programs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You get, you earn your college credit. And then if you want to apply those credits to an associate's degree, mm-hmm. you're halfway or better there. You're more than halfway to that yep. associate's degree yep. doing that. And it's a heck of a lot less money. I don't know what the cost of college is now, but it's a heck of a lot less than going to these schools that give you this accelerated program. And they tell you you're going to get a job, but we know that it's not the easiest thing to yeah, get a yeah. job right out of a coding program. Yeah. And I, I felt so horrible, you know, for, for the, those students, you know, in, in that situation, because again, I feel it's like, you don't like me and you're wanting to get rid of me, but you're being preyed upon and you don't even realize that you're being yeah, preyed upon yeah, by this mm-hmm. institution, yeah. but you're just happy. I'm gone. Most of you are happy that I quit and I didn't come back. Um, but it was, it, it was so different from college where you pretty much have autonomy in the classroom and you can do things the way that you want to. There was one issue I had with one class where someone did complain about something that I did. And the program director said, well, I think maybe you should do this or maybe consider changing it. And I said, no, I'm not going to. And when I said, no, I wasn't going to, she stood by me. She didn't force me to change anything. She just shared the concern and advised me. And then I said, no, this is how I'm going to proceed. So as an instructor, it was a very different experience and just, from the student perspective, seeing even friends I know and people I've met over the years who've gone through programs like that, they I've never found anybody that's been happy with the result of a program like that. They come out in debt and they struggle yeah, to find jobs yeah. and they're not qualified. Yep, and so that's, yeah, we were talking about our, our teaching experience, but I'm like, I have to share this story for the benefit of the audience. If anybody out there is looking at coding programs please, please, please look at the colleges and go to those KHIM accredited programs through AHIMA. That's going to be the gold standard there um, to make sure that you're getting what you need. And again, you want your credit to be transferable to college. These people paid 14 grand and you can't even take any of that and Mm -hmm. apply it to a college degree. If you decide that you want to get an associate's or a bachelor's, you're just stuck with a certificate and you you paid $14,000 for it. 
Yeah, I I did a video on it where I took um I applied the Kahim. I went to the Kahim website and I picked out you know an associates in the bachelor's program, and then I picked the I don't know it's of medical billing and coding, which actually I had taught for because they weren't accredited by Kahim, and you could tell the the very stark difference between the curriculum. Um, one's more extensive. One will prepare you well. It has the courses and accredited was was short in you know in terms of semesters now one thing i did want to add you have the concern for students but also the concern for uh national teaching you your name is going to be yes. uh, the one who has mm-hmm. is part of that program teaching you and right. you know when you're putting out students um you want to make sure you have the stamp of approval that they're ready Yes. Uh, but if the institution is not backing you up to to allowing you to have your students industry ready, well, that there goes your reputation. You know, your mm-hmm. reputation will follow through with it. Well, who was you know what school was it? Well, it was this this in school. Who was the instructor? Oh, it was Stacy Buck. Oh right. darn, you know, uh, you know. So those are those are some of the things you have to be concerned about. So for those that are looking into teaching, I mean. Now the, the 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 requirements has gone up. In order for you yes. to teach a bachelor's, you need a master's. Mm-hmm. If you need to teach a uh, an associate, you need to have a bachelor. So they changed that right. uh, recently. Yeah, I mean, if you enjoy education, I would recommend that if you're an educator and you haven't taught at the college level, try it at least once. Yeah, um, some One people. Class. Yeah, what's interesting is some people actually will start as an adjunct and then they really enjoy it mm-hmm. and then they become you know, faculty eventually. And then some people go on to become program directors. Yep. You you just kind of find if that's where, you know, you're happy for me, it never really fit. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was an adjunct instructor at Indian River at the time, Claudia Keating was the program director. And those of you who've been in the industry for a while may be familiar with her. And she always wanted me to take over her job when she retired. She's like, <laughs> you would make a great program director. She's like, but you would have to earn a master's degree. She's like, in the short term, they would let you do it with a bachelor's. If you were working on a master's, you could come in. And she's like, they pay really well, you know, at this college. They did. It was one of the higher paid colleges in the state at the time. And, you know, she's telling me, you know, what I can make. And I'm like, well, I'm like, I can make more in the field. She goes, well, if you taught overflow classes too. And then I'm like, what? So I'm teaching like crazy and working all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I can make way more money working in the field than I ever could being an educator. And so money was part of the issue. But the other issue was I get bored doing the same thing like over and Mm -hmm. over and over Mm -hmm. again. And I just didn't feel like that was a long-term fit for me. And and having that entrepreneurial spirit and wanting to have my own business, I just I felt I feel like once you go into education full time, you're kind of stuck there, and it's yeah. harder to come back into the field and actually work as a practitioner doing whatever you're doing. Yeah. And it's interesting. I had someone who used to work for AHIMA say that, that that's a challenge when you've worked for AHIMA in a position and you come out and you're transitioning back into the field, that that can be a challenge. It's not impossible. I mean, but it's just, it's, it's different. So I feel like once you're in academia, you, if you're there a long time, you might get stuck. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> like you're it, not, yeah, because yeah, you're not hands-on yeah. in the, in the industry, exactly. you know, that I think you lose that. And um, I agree, you, you feel stuck. And one of the things that I, I did not like was grading. 
And when I actually had taught for, I went from ITT to Colorado Technical University, which was my first online teaching job. I went from a class of like four to like a class 35 or 50, you know. And so imagine grading 50 assignments. Mm -hmm. and you're required to have them ready within 24 hours and then you have to have hours for all of those students and sometimes those students don't you know the online environment is very weird because they they just don't you know i try to engage the same way with video and, st and stuff like that but mm -hmm. i don't think we ever use video it's mostly voice and so you have to engage with your voice in the class and have these all these presentations but you know I think the engagement level on the online level, it, it was just not there. Like they, you know, you would be open to help, but they wouldn't reach out to help, you know, to receive that help. Yeah. I never taught any of the college courses online. I got yeah. out of that before things started to move online. And I always wondered about the effectiveness of that. I just find like, I prefer face-to-face -face in person as a yeah. student. I wouldn't want to take classes online. I like the face-to-face -face and, you know, even like with the online course that I have for interventional radiology, with all the people that are enrolled in that, like right now, I probably have about 80 people on there at some point in mm, the course. Okay. Some just started, some are near the end, some are middle. It's, usually, it's about 80 something, I would say, that are currently in that. And they never interact with me. It's like rare. It's like, I'm here to like support you, but nobody's posting questions. You know, I tell them if you ever need help, you know, reach out to me, we can schedule you know, a session, if you want a live session, if you need additional assistance, I do say if we schedule it, it's not one on one, we open it up to everybody, you know, yeah, it's yeah, not a yeah. private tutoring session. Yeah. But I'm here, nobody's ever asked me for any of those sessions. And all the years I've been doing this, those haven't happened. And I rarely get them posting any questions. So I don't know what it is about the, the online thing, but I would have expected a lot more interaction. And that's why when I initially started offering the course, I limited enrollment. And I said, I'm going to limit enrollment because I don't want to get overwhelmed. You know, I want to make sure that I provide support to all the students who need support and I have enough time to answer questions and they're not waiting. And then over time, I'm like, well, I'm like, I can take the cap off and I haven't had to cap, cap it because I'm not, and I, I don't understand why there is that dynamic with online. So it sounds like college is very similar to just what I'm doing, which is continuing education. And it's still the same. There's not a lot yeah, of, yeah. lot of interaction there. Yeah. Either, you know, uh, probably it attests to the, the materials that you give them, you know, they'll walk away, you know, like usually when you, when you attend a, sh a session, is there any questions? Nope. I mean, yeah. so they, they have the information. I think the, the, the most students feel that they are independent, you know, the, to take the material and try to figure it out on their own. Uh, mm -hmm. But at some point <laughs> when they get into the industry, it's going to, it's going to haunt them because, you know, you, you're, you're putting yourself, you're, you're putting yourself out there as available as an industry person to, right. to answer questions and to mentor, possibly mentor and create connections. But I don't know. It's just the same thing. Same thing with Facebook groups. It's the same thing. I have an RHIT, RHA exam support group. I try to reach out and say, Hey, look, um, let's have study groups uh nobody does it <laughs> you know they just want to <laughs> grab the materials and just do right. it on their own you know they want to be independent yeah i mean and i can relate to that to a certain degree i mean i'm pretty good at teaching myself things like if i have the material but at the same time i still want to hear it from a human and have that face-to-face -face interaction when i'm first mm -hmm. being introduced to it and then let me go ahead and walk away um with the material so it, it's interesting to see how things have 
shifted. I mean, I've been in this field and I can't, now every time I say this, I can't believe I'm saying it. I'm like 30 years, you know, next year, 2022 will be 30 years working oh, in cool. HIM. And yeah, cool. Except for the fact that I'm like, you know, really old, but other than that, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's cool. Now Christine got mad at me in the one episode. Cause I kept joking about how we were old <laughs> no. and she didn't like that. Cause Christine's a little bit older than me. Not uh, much, but she's a uh, little bit older than me. And she's like, I didn't appreciate you like saying <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> old. I'm like, but we're young at heart. We don't look at an there acid. You go. So, there you so go. we're there like you go. all good. That's like mm. all that matters. But no, just to see all the changes in the industry and everything used to be face-to-face. -face. We didn't know any other way, like other than face-to-face. -face. Everything was in person, you know. That's right. Even, you know, now with COVID and so many things switching to virtual, and you know, you did a lot of conferences like me, virtual. It seems like in 2020, you and I were speaking at the same conferences in 2020. Mm. Um, and I didn't, I don't like doing the big stuff virtual. It just mm. doesn't, it doesn't work for me. You kind of lose something for those bigger conferences when you're doing it virtual. I mean, it's okay for an APC local chapter or, you know, one of the HIM, you know, local chapters or something like that. But I really, really didn't like that. And I hope that, we don't get away from face-to-face -face meetings. Unfortunately, I think that's going to be a trend. Um, even before COVID, it seemed like face-to-face -face meeting attendance was down. Um, mm. and, and, you know, with some meetings, you know, other ones are still, you know, very successful. But I don't know. I feel as you have older people who are transitioning out of the profession who are accustomed to the face-to-face -face and do the face-to-face -face. when the younger people are coming up, are they going to want to go to these in-person meetings? Like me, I love going to like the FHIMA convention every year mm -hmm. to see people, talk to people, you know, interact. I don't spend a lot of time getting education. I got to be honest because yeah. most, because most of that stuff doesn't pertain to what I do. So for me, it's like socialization and it's networking. I go to like meet new people and see other people. I can't, and, and that's what you don't get on the virtual, no matter what they do. And they try to give you virtual networking. There is just absolutely no replacement for that whatsoever. And, you know, LinkedIn, you network virtually. It's still, it, it's like, I feel like those, they help, but they shouldn't replace. And there are a lot of people who never go to in-person meetings and they hide behind a computer. Yeah. And I, I don't think that that's the best thing because how... I mean, you have to interact with people at some point, even if it's virtually, how do you, you know, build, build those communication skills and those mm -hmm. interpersonal skills yep, when you're it. not, you know, out there interacting with people? How do you field your, your, your crowd, you know, going back to the beginning, you know, how are you, how do you know the dynamics of individual people, you right. know, versus just reading a text or looking at a screen, you can't do that. And so, you know, for me, I had the that that we had that ability to to do that and so now with all of that stuff potentially kind of slowly progressing away you lose that advantage yeah you have to to really get to know somebody you have to have a conversation with them there are so many times i have known people virtually for years and so there may be exchanges on social media there may be exchanges in email but i've never had a conversation and then eventually we have a conversation whether it be on the phone or whether it be in person, you know, I, I try to meet as many people as I can in person, you know, if it's possible. And you think you know someone, but you don't really know them That's until right. you have that real conversation. There's yeah. just absolutely no substitute for that because 
you get a feel very quickly within the first, you know, few five to 10 minutes of a conversation, whether you have a chemistry with a person or whether you don't have a chemistry with a person. You know, some people I get on the phone with or I talk to, I can talk for hours and never run out of things to talk about. And we go back and forth. You're one of those people, me and you, you've interviewed me, you know, for your podcast. We can talk and talk. Christine, who I had on the podcast, the same thing. And then mm -hmm. other people, I'm hard pressed to make 10 minutes of conversation with oh, them. Really? It's just not, it's just not quite there <laughs> sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, so, it, and that's one of the reasons why I like doing the podcast is because of the inter adding guests to the podcast. It changes yeah. the dynamic. Because you, you remember, remember when you first started the brainstorming the podcast, you're like, I'm just gonna, it's just gonna be me. Yeah. And then when I hear you bringing on guests, I'm like, that's interesting. You're evolving yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's only so much of me that I can listen to. I mean, it, it's okay to get on the podcast and talk about a topic. Yeah. But I feel like for like a listener, you have to, your content has to be so engaging to hold someone's attention if you're solo, if you're doing a solo podcast episode. Yeah. And I'm like, let me try doing the guest thing to kind of mix it up. I didn't plan to full on go with guests. I'm like, let me try it and see how it works. And then Tony L. Holmes was the first person that I did cool. the interview with. Good. And I had so much fun doing see? that with her. Mm -hmm. And then with Christine, you know, Christine, we had a lot of fun together. Oh, she was great too. Um, you know, you you suggested, oh, maybe you and Stacy, you know, should do a podcast together. You should. You because you guys have that chemistry and we do have that chemistry. And it's like, I feel like when you're with other people, it just, the how can I, I can't even put it into words. It's just so, so much better where I feel like left to my own devices, I'm kind of boring and dry. But if you give me somebody to interact with, it brings out a whole nother side there you go. Yeah. To, to me and my personality and what I have to offer Versus me just talking, you know, from a list of talking points that I've developed. And while people say they like those episodes and there's a lot of valuable content, the podcast, you know, has, you know, exploded. I still don't have really high numbers because it's still new, but I'm three times, you know, the Good. listens, what Good. I was getting with the solo um, episodes. And so I definitely mm -hmm. want to continue with the guests. So I have to thank you for pushing me for getting into podcasting in the first place because I know uh, you yeah. were on me uh, on yeah. me for for a while <laughs> to do it and so i finally took the plunge and i'm loving it oh, and i'm so funny i wish i would have done it oh, sooner so funny. well you know that my fear was what am i going to talk about i That's don't have right. anything anything to talk about yeah and that was and that was part of why i switched to guests because after i had done like what probably close to a dozen solo episodes i'm like mm -hmm. okay i'm really tapped out i don't know what else i can talk about yeah. by myself but what i like about with guests is I prepare a little bit, but I don't script it or anything. Good, you know, I might good, throw out, good. you know, I didn't send you a list of questions, but I've no, sent you other sent me guests. nothing <laughs> except, yeah, for, except I, some homework. Exactly. I gave you homework. I didn't have any questions, but even my other guests, I'm like, here's a list of questions, pick like a dozen that you want to answer, but I can ask you anything. Like that's kind of the rule. I like to see where things go because something that, you know, you might share or yes, something that Christine yeah. shared or Tony mm -hmm. shared reminds me of something. And then I'm mm -hmm. like, Oh, I can share on that. There point you too. go. Yeah. You know, and it just, and then we get to have fun and we get to have a few laughs. Now you, you, know, now you see why I like it. You see? Yes. So good, yes. good, good, yeah. good. But the key is you have to have a good 
guests with like good chemistry. So I've been lucky so far that, okay, so I have interviewed Tony L. Holmes. I have interviewed Christine Hall. Mm-hmm. I interviewed Victoria Mull. Okay. She's good. And actually I didn't know a lot about Victoria and we had had minimal interaction until that podcast episode. I got to know her a lot better through She's the great. podcast episode, yep. which was nice. And now I'm like interviewing like you. So these are all great people with great personalities. Mm-hmm. I know at some point in time, I'm going to hit a dud of a guest. I'm going to, where it's probably not just going to be. But let, let me let me tell you, much, be as much fun. Now I'm going to say this: I I listen to most of your podcast episodes, and I think you are great, and I love listening to you. But some of your guests, That's when I, I listen to. When I listen to part one, I'm like, I'm barely getting through it. And I'm like, I will not listen to part two because of the guest. It has nothing to do with yeah, you, yeah, Brian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it, you, you will, I don't want to say duds, but you will get some, <laughs> um, <laughs> duds. duds. All, That's my word, not yours. Well, there, there are, there are interesting. I mean, when I pick guests, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to expect. You right, know, right. I only know them because of, or I get them on, on the podcast because of one aspect that interests me. And yeah, so, so, so you are, you are finding these people virtually, like, you know, them virtually, but you've not had conversations with most none, of them. None, never. I never, exactly. I, I used to prep them. I used to prep them before we would, I, I used to, in the beginning, have an hour conversation before the podcast. I used to when I did Charlita Hoffman, we had a we had a pot we had a meeting before the the actual <laughs> podcast. It wasn't until um what's her name Noel Noel Del Brown, and we had a sixty minute conversation. And I'm like, I wish we had recorded this. You know, like you know why why am I having this meeting and we're having great conversations? So I stopped that. I stopped it and I said, you know, we need to have. I think what you're thriving on is spontaneity. Yes. You know, like, oh, like, oh, like, you know, the energy is there. And yes. then you you have the thrill of piggybacking and jumping on commenting on what they said because you were surprised as to what they said. Now, going back to the guests, they have some of them have a really high dynamic in speaking. You could tell that they they know how to carry on a conversation. Some of them don't, you know, like, you know, they'll, you'll ask them a question. And, and what I do is I allow them to talk and I can gauge if they're a good, like yourself, when you, when I ask you a question, you can go on, go on forever. And I sit there, remember the last episode, I just let you talk. (laughs) Right. And and you just took over my podcast episode, but there are some that I would ask a question and then it would just like, uh, it would just kind of cut like, Oh, Oh. And, and so what I've learned to do, and I, and I try to do it, is kind of construct certain general topics. And I'll just ask random questions from, from certain things that within, let's say, you know, they may give like a, a five-minute summary on their 30-year career. I'm like, oh, what, what? So I have questions. And right. so I learned to, to ask questions and kind of break it down. And I've always seen it like, okay, let me open this door. I see a few more doors. Let's go through this door. And that's why when you listen to me and we have conversation, we tend to get lost because I open a couple doors and we go down this rabbit hole. And sometimes we're stuck in this rabbit hole. And, you know, another thing to be very skilled at is to get out of the rabbit hole, back up and go go, go through the other door and go that down through that rabbit hole as well. So, you know, four years of of interviewing, I'm sure you'll, you'll, you'll catch on, you know, how to 
go in a hole, go out of the hole, go into another mm-hmm. hole. And I, I was guiding you a little bit earlier, <laughs> you know, and you'll do it. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the fun of it all in, in podcasting. I don't know. I think that the rabbit holes are more fun sometimes. Yes, the deeper <laughs> the ra- the funny. deeper the rabbit hole, the the it's it's so much better. And and you tell you're worried about getting lost. Get lost. Get lost. That's probably another podcast up. You know, probably uh, get, getting lost with Brian Quinn like that or getting lost with Stacy Buck. I don't know. So you know, like these are these are things that you have to consider. Like in podcasting, I, I you know I. I always mention this a lot, like podcasting, there should be no structure. You're just there and people, what are people doing when they listen to podcasts? Like myself, I was doing work today. I was listening. People listen to their car mm-hmm. sit down and, and just, you know, like, you know, listen to the podcast. They're always <laughs> doing, <laughs> they're always doing something, dishes, right. lawn, you know, whatever. Um, the thing is, and I mentioned the, the hard translation into YouTube is because you have to watch the, the interview. And I, I found that the numbers on the YouTube, the not also classified is a bit, is way lower than the hundreds of, uh, listeners or downloads that I get from the, the audio version. It's, it's just a very stark contrast. Yeah. So I may title this episode, get lost because yeah. you had, you have completely messed up my flow. So <laughs> I have lost control of this a long time ago and you have been like driving this and I want to kind of circle back to some of these things. So, so those of you that are listening, we are definitely jumping around because there are certain things that I wanted to cover. And so we're totally like out of order and I can't see me doing that much editing on an episode. Oh, we did that. We did that. We did that in our, in our, in the last episode on my podcast, you had a, you had a goal in mind to talk about consulting and but we never really got down to it. Yeah. <laughs> but we, but we somehow it jumped about, around. Yeah, it was about becoming a subject matter expert. That, and I think there we, you go. There we, you go. There you I go. I think we did touch on it at the very end, like very quickly. But then the I la- did a solo. <laughs> I did a solo podcast on it, so I covered. Yeah. I made sure to cover yeah, everything so just, there that I wanted to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so I I do want to circle back yes. to that episode again with Christine Hall that I did called "Show Me." the money. Mm. And so in that episode, we talked, we talked a lot about differences between men and women. And we were talking about how they're different when it comes to salary negotiations. So thinking back to that conversation that Christine and I had, where do you think we got it right? Where do you think we got it wrong? Like, you know, what are, what are your thoughts on what we said about negotiating salaries? Um, I don't know about the HIM industry. You know, I, I could, again, there's not too many males <laughs> to, to uh, you know, gain data from. But, you know, whenever I got into a job, whatever they accepted me, I was grateful for it. You know, because of, mm-hmm. of every time I got into a job, it was something new. It wasn't like I wasn't transitioning from a director to a director. Uh, right. It was always going from one level to the next level. And because of that, there's a love, there's a certain um, sense of uncertainty in terms mm-hmm. of pay. So, mm-hmm. but the pay was substantially higher than where I was before, right? right? But because it's a, let's say it's a corporate position, it's a standard pay rate, but it was higher than what I was, you know, because right now mm-hmm. I'm, I'm an, uh, a clinical validation auditor, but it was substantially higher than what I was making 
as a CDI. So did I have to negotiate? Not really. Um, but when you look at the, you know, the grand scale, there is a, you know, you're looking at the, the let's say the movie industry or whatever industry, there, may, there is a disparate, there is a, a gap, you know, between what males are getting paid for and what women are getting paid for. Now, in terms of negotiation skills, I think it has to come down to uh, standing your ground. I think it, that's where when I listen to that, like, okay, do you know what you want? You know, are you certain what you, you are going to get? I, I think when there's a level of uncertainty, like myself, when you get into something that's uncertain, you're just going to accept whatever you're going to get. But if you do enough research in the field mm -hmm. and the position and the company, um, you will hit on the mark as to what you want in terms of a salary. So it's it's all about preparation. I think it's key. I don't think it necessarily has to do with um, you know, with male or female. Uh, it's just like proper. Look, you got to be prepared. You know, if you don't know what you're gonna make, then you're you know, you got to ask around. Like for example, my sister. You know, she works as um, a trauma. Is it trauma? Yeah, trauma. A trauma registrar in Jacksonville. And so she went from working as an LPN at a nursing home, right? And, uh, you know, she was asking me, she was asking a fellow trauma registrars, how much do you make, right? And, mm -hmm. and then she would just, she was very well aware of what the salary was. And then I think what Christine has is go a little bit higher and see what they say. Uh, play that game, you know, play that negotiation game to where, Okay, if this is the pay rate, go a little bit higher. If they don't accept it, fine. Uh, is it? And then you have to ask yourself: Is the pay rate that they're going to give you substantially higher than where you were at? You know, mm -hmm. you can't be greedy. <laughs> right, right. You can't be greedy. Just, just know that if you have the potential to go a little bit higher, then you might as well go for it. What's the worst that can happen? Yeah, no, I agree. You should always, you know, ask ask for more than what your bottom line yeah. is because. Yeah. If you know what you absolutely have to make, you know, and you can't go any lower than that, I always tell people shoot at least $10,000 higher yeah, on something, you know, like that. That's like been my general rule. So, okay. So you said that there is a pay gap. So you're saying that this is, is a real thing. About general, the pay gap. Okay. general, generally, yes. generally, generally, okay. I feel. So, so, but let me ask you this question then. Why oh, do boy. you think... <laughs> <laughs> am I, I going to get in trouble for uh, disclaimer? I am not, no. you know, I'm not the representative of all males. Okay. No. So, <laughs> well, no, some, some industries. Okay. I believe that there is like a pay gap, but I think there are reasons for pay gaps. And I will give you some obvious things where it should be obvious when we're talking about athletics, for example, and we're talking about female sports and male okay. sports, okay. the okay. females want to okay. make as much as the males. Well, there's a, to me, there's a logical reason why that doesn't happen. You don't have the viewers for the female right. sports that you mm -hmm. do for the male sports. It's about dollars where the revenue is being made over here, watching the men play the sports. The revenue is not made from the women playing the sports. So I don't feel that they're trying to treat you unfairly. It's a dollars and cents issue. I agree. We could, we could even say the same thing with like Hollywood. Okay. If you're the person who has the reputation for bringing in the box office dollars, you're going to, you know, bring in a lot of money versus someone who doesn't have that reputation. To me, it's kind of like a proven track record. So I, I, why do you, but why do you think those are just kind of like obvious examples, but why do you think that there is a, a pay gap? I guess I don't feel, 
how can I say this? I think one of the reasons why there's a pay gap, this is my theory on this, is that you had, you know, women for many years who were not in the workforce. I think that is part of the issue. And in our generation, women have always been in the workforce, but it was never like that. You know, you mm. didn't have women like working full time. Mm -hmm. So I think when you have a, a large group of people who were not in the workforce and they come in and you were having more entry level positions, you didn't have a lot of college educated women. Now that has shifted. You have more women graduating college with college educations than yeah, men. Because they are adapting. Exactly. And so you've seen that shift. So I think it's just because of where we used to be. It's it's slower to catch up in some areas just for that reason, because culturally we were in a different place, you know, back when I was born and, you know, you were born and we've seen this change kind of come through. I think that that's part of the reason why maybe women still lag behind. And then I also feel like Christine and I talked about women don't do a good enough job advocating for themselves or sometimes women are just choose professions that are paid like lower like anyway, like I think of our profession, I'm sure years ago, it was not a widely respected profession or well-paid. They were known as medical record librarians. Mm -hmm. And it was probably mm -hmm. all a bunch of women that mm -hmm. were medical records. Mm -hmm. It was seen as a clerical position. So it just seems like over time, we, we've we evolved and I feel like we've made so much progress. But yes. so why, why do you think that that's still there? Like, what do you think is the reason for it? Because we had speculated that women aren't stepping up to the plate and demanding what they're worth. Like they don't go there like a guy would go there. That's what Christine and I were kind uh, of saying in that episode. I think I wanted to add is that maybe it's, it's, a, it's a perception issue, right? You mentioned, you know, well, who's at the top now? Like who, who are the top CEOs, you know, they're probably male, male from the older generation, right? So they still have a certain mentality. They're still in the middle of a cultural shift, but they're not there yet. You know what I'm saying? Right. But we so, have more women CEOs now than we never have. Correct. So there's a still, they're right. So yeah. it's not like we're at a standstill. Yeah. We're not at a standstill. There's, yeah. there's definitely going to be a yes. shift. So Absolutely. there is still a gap, but I guess a question that you want to ask, we want to ask is, is this going to shift? How, how much is this going to shift in the future? Is this going to be a big shift where, you know, is there going to be, the, I guess a question is, is the gap going to narrow in the future? And when in the future is that going to happen? And what's that going to take? I think it's just about perception and who are, who is at the top making those decisions? Do they have that perception of women being able to step up to the plate and do the jobs, the requirement of the job title. Um, I think that's what it comes down to perception. And then you mentioned, uh, you know, just feeling that you could do the job, you know, mm -hmm. without having the stigma of, oh, a man could do it better. Well, if you think a man can do it better, then why can't you fix that? Fix that problem. Fix that gap. Try to make yourself better in such a way that you can do it, and 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 get that perception and that reputation that will put you at the top at an equal level. You know, it's like, you know, it's just work for it. <laughs> you know, you if you right. want something, work for it. Don't I think don't be entitled to think that you're gonna get it because you of whatever you are. You know, hard work is still hard work. Right. You know, uh, experience is still experience. Skill is still skill. It's how you perceive it and how you portray it. Because if you're just going to stay silent and say you got skills, yeah. well, show me, 
Show right. me you got skills. Show me that you got skills that are comparable to uh, a guy, a female, whatever culture, whatever it may be. Show me. That's what I always all, I'm all about. Just don't tell me. Show me. You know, show me that you could do the job. Other than that, you know, if if you're just gonna show me a diploma and a resume, I could care less. I want to hear it from your mouth. How you perceive? How how what do you what is coming from you, the person? I think that's most important. Yeah. I mean, I think there's obviously like a lot of progress there. I mean, you know, looking at my lifetime, how far like women have, have come. And I know there are some industries that are like, oh, we need to get more women into them. You know, every industry talks about diversity and screams about diversity. And one of the things is, well, for diversity, we need to bring in more women into a male dominated profession. And, you know, men into like HIM, for example, is a female um, dominated profession. And to me, I'm like, okay, I'm like, I kind of understand that to a certain degree. But then when I'm looking at it from the other side, I'm like, I don't care if you're male or female, I want the person who's going there to do go. the best job. That's right. So as as the employer, I want to pick the best candidate who's going to do the best job for me. And then me as the person applying for the job, I don't want you giving me preferential treatment because I'm female. That's right. I want to get the I want to get the job on my own merits because I'm better than the 10 guys that interviewed for this position. Yeah. I'm only the one female and that's why I want it. And so I feel like in some cases, people are just trying to meet certain quotas, I guess, in certain situations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we could argue that side of it too. <laughs> and, and um, you know, I don't want to, I don't, I, cause I do say, oh, I feel it's advantageous to be a woman. I say that. But I'm not saying that in, oh, because I'm a woman, you should give me something. That's not what I'm saying. Right. What I'm saying is women can use their skills and strengths to benefit them when they channel them in the right way. Going back to what I was saying before, I know I was joking about being like, you know, the young, hot girl, you know, dealing with the guy. But there's a way to channel that appropriately. It's not inappropriate behavior, but you can kind of play to that to a certain degree is all I'm saying, because People, people are people. It's just, it's human nature and you're attracted to certain people and certain things. I did want to talk about the, the, the one thing that, um, that the difference between male and female is the multitasking. Uh, in, and then you said the guys have a one track mind. Somebody said laser focus. I'm, I took my notes by the way. And so <laughs> the, I, I can, I can attest to that. It's like, I cannot, if I'm given a task, I cannot multitask within that task. Like if you tell me like, okay, uh, I should bring my wife down, but you know, she, she will say when I drive, nobody will talk to me because I am focused on driving, especially when you look at I four. Now, if you, if my wife starts to talk to me, I will not talk back because I am so focused <laughs> on making sure and ensuring that you are alive by the time we get home. And so she's like, why don't you talk to me? Especially when we, drives for like three right. hours why don't you talk to me because i'm driving i don't want to <laughs> screw this up especially if you're on the florida turnpike or if you're on the i4 mm. and so it's the same thing like i cannot like even if i'm cooking for example thanksgiving dinner i am cooking one dish at a time and so my wife says well can i can i start something uh while you're cooking that i said no 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 no. i i need to it's like i need to have this then this then this then this then this it's all in a line we can't we can't have the multiverse of cooking thanksgiving you know one level here one level here one level here and so i i totally agree with that so for guys it's like you know one thing at a time um another thing that i, I wrote down here uh 
I wrote I wrote down guys don't really uh, read between the lines, right? So like if you say something, right. I'll take it face value, right? right? <laughs> you know, so that's one thing. Yes. And I if you tell me something, I'm like okay, right? Like you say <laughs> one thing, I'm like all right, I I get it. And and they like you sure like you know my wife would say, well, are you sure you got it? I'm like. Yeah, I think I got it right. <laughs> that's what you said, right? And then whatever later on the lies is that that's not what I meant. I'm like, okay, well, tell me what you mean. <laughs> tell me, tell me what you mean. You know that type of thing. Um, we don't overthink, right? Because we're focused on one thing, we can't overthink uh, because we're we're not great multitaskers. Um, the emotional tie, yes. Uh, I don't get emotional on certain things. Like I don't get mad if. Uh, uh, the dishes are not done. I just do them, you know, like, oh, it's, who didn't do it? Okay, well, you do it. Uh, <laughs> listen, but she will, well, every time my wife has to clean up something, she'll just go like, why wasn't this done? You know, and that type of thing. And I'm like, why are you getting, why are you getting mad? Just tell, you know, so-and-so to, to clean it. You know, what, what, why do we have to add emotion to this? And so I, th- those are my responses. What else do I have? Um... <laughs> Uh, I think that's it. I think you you mentioned the selling your, themselves. I think it just has to deal with the emotional tie. You know, when you think about getting a job or not getting a job, uh, not getting the pay grade. You know, just in general, at least for me, I don't add an emotional tie to it. Like I don't mm-hmm. take it personally. I think that's the mm-hmm. that's the best phrase. Yeah. Um, I used to, um, at first, but then I learned not to. Because right. I'm like it, it just it just adds so much more to your shoulders. Like why do you you know just I just who cares? Get another job. Find look for another job. Look for another you know look for another option that is better for you. Uh, just don't weigh yourself on just because you didn't get that one job. I think for one thing is like you know especially when you look at medical coders, new medical coders in the field are bent on getting a medical coding job as their first job, mm-hmm. and when they don't get it, they're devastated. Right. Yeah. And so I, I'm not talking about male or female, just in general, just yeah. in general. No, it's true. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. like, oh, my God, I didn't get a coding job for my first job. I'm like, well, yeah, that's expected, you know, and yeah. and like really nobody told me that. I'm like, well, welcome to reality. <laughs> I don't know if anybody has told you that. And so then they'll feel devastated. But the thing is, if you feel at that component, it's devastation. But when yeah. you move out the emotional, it's just a setback. Yeah. And so, OK, you got to move forward. So that's all the notes I got for the male and female because <laughs> I don't know. I didn't have anything else for that. But I, I think the emotional tie is what is the 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 main difference. Yeah. So it's funny when you say that, you know, guys just take things at like face value. Like that's what you said. Okay, I got it. Like where a woman will take what a guy says and she will dissect it and she will analyze it and she will try to go under the hood and try to figure out exactly what was meant in by the that. mind in yes. the in your mind yes. in your yes. mind <laughs> but if for, like for me you notice if i have a question i will ask i will yes. communicate it yes. immediately right yes. i'll say yes. okay what's wrong where do you want to mm-hmm. eat <laughs> yeah do you want to eat here you want to eat there like it's like we're, we for, we will cater mm-hmm. you know to uh, for me i will cater to my wife you know, like I, I will make sure she is her needs are addressed, you know, but I don't know. That's <laughs> when you when you gave me this topic, I'm like, I don't want to get in trouble for this. 
You're fine. You're. I think everything you said was okay. Me, okay, I think I. I think I probably stepped in it like a few few times, which oh. I didn't do. But no. But again, so we we talk about like males and and I guess when, I think the problem is when we talk about males and females, we're we're getting into that territory of stereotypes. And yeah, people, I just I didn't want to go. Yeah, people get really offended by stereotypes, you know. But when it comes to like men and women. We have stereotypes for a reason because a lot of these things like hold, tr there's truth to the stereotype in the male female dynamic. There just is mm -hmm. like no matter how you slice it, but then you can still have females like myself and like Christine who have the ability to conduct ourselves like a male in certain mm -hmm. situations. Like you talk about, you know, don't take things personally. Like me, there are so many situations I tell people it's not personal, it's business. It's not personal, it's business. I have the ability to remove personal feelings and emotion when it comes to business. And I think that's one of the reasons why I've been successful or why I can let things go and you don't have to fight, um, you know, every, every battle. And I try sometimes in my personal life where you, the emotion runs much higher in my personal life than it does in business. I try to apply those same tactics I use in business and my personal life for problem solving, mm -hmm. take a step back and take emotion out of it. And some people that works with and then other people it doesn't because they just want to have the drama and the chaos and, and, you know, the fight there was, you know, on a personal note, you know, there was a person I was in dating long-term and we were constantly fighting about stuff. And I just hit a point where I'm like, you know what? I'm like, I need to find a better way to try to like resolve conflict and have a conversation. So this is where I put on like my business hat. And so I would sit down, you know, try to be calm and have a conversation and look at things matter of factly and remove the emotion and that would make him more upset. He would yell at me, why do you got to treat everything like a business transaction? Mm -hmm. And it would make him more angry. And I'm like, okay, clearly this isn't the solution with this particular person. And I was dealing with a guy who mm -hmm. actually, I had, as the female, I had the ability to pull back the emotion and try to look at it objectively because I got tired of fighting and being so emotional about it. But the person on the other side still wanted me to react that way and, and be like they that. They wanted the emotion. Yes. And they're like, you know, you, you're not showing any emotion. You're treating it like a business deal. And I'm like, mm -hmm. because doing it this way isn't working. We have to try something else. And so again, certain people, they're not, no matter what you do, you will not make progress, whether it's in a business relationship, a personal relationship. But I feel that we all have a personal responsibility to examine our role in any relationship, whether it be personal or professional and see how we contribute to the dynamic and how we can improve the dynamic. And what's interesting is sometimes if you shift how you interact with a person, if you do it, even if they don't change anything immediately, if you do it, eventually they will act differently with you and towards you in a lot of cases. And yeah. you've shifted the dynamic by making a change yourself, not demanding that they do anything, but you just change how you show up. And then they're responding differently and they don't even realize it. And then some people are just a hot mess and you're never going <laughs> to win yeah, them over right. no matter what you do and be able to solve the conflict. And so if that happens on the job, that's where you need to walk away. You need to remove yourself. I don't recommend, you know, I talked about standing up to the bully, I, you know, and I did it and I did it for a time, but I knew that that was somewhere I wasn't going to stay long-term in a situation like that. You don't want to keep yourself in a toxic situation right. and you want to remove mm -hmm. yourself from it. But while you're in it, you need to find the best way 
to cope in that situation until you can make the change. Cause most people don't have the luxury to just quit their jobs and like walk away and, you know, then go on a search, you know, for the next job they need a paycheck. And Mm -hmm. that's why I put up with what I did for so long. I'm like, I need a paycheck. And then luckily the right opportunity came along and I was able to completely bail and like never, um, you know, look back. That brings us to the end of part two of my interview with Brian Quee. Part three, titled What Do Women Want, will release on January 11th, 2022. I can't believe we are only days away from ringing in the new year. I want to wish all of my loyal listeners a very happy new year, and I hope that 2022 brings you much love, peace, happiness, and success. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to take a moment to give the podcast a five-star rating leave a review, and of course, share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you have feedback you'd like to share in an episode or topic suggestion, please send an email to podcast at radrx.com. That's podcast at radrx.com. And I would still love to start an Ask Stacy segment on a regular basis. So please submit any questions you would like answered in a future episode to Ask Stacy at radrx.com. That's Ask Stacy. Stacy is spelled S T A C I E at radrx.com. Until next year, thanks again for tuning in and have an amazing week. Thank you for listening to Who Cares What Stacy Says. You can connect with Stacy on social media. You can find her business page for RadRx on Facebook, and you can connect with her personally on LinkedIn. Don't forget to check out the online training courses offered by RadRx. Cracking the IR code, mastering interventional radiology and cardiology online training, or cracking the diagnostic radiology code online training. Thanks again for tuning in to Who Cares What Stacy Says, a podcast providing insights and advice on how to take your medical coding career to the next level.